Welcome to the Angel Next Door podcast, your gateway to the dynamic world of angel investing. I'm your host, Marsha Dawood, and together we will demystify what it means to invest in early stage companies, who's behind it, and how anyone can be a part of it. If you've ever wondered how you can affect the change you want to see in the world, then tune in to learn more. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, I'm talking to Colin Gardner who helped companies like Outdoorsy, Tripping, and Ancestry.com raise over $200 million. Colin was brought up in a family of entrepreneurs and is now an operator in residence at Techstars, an advisor to countless startups, and the host of several podcasts, including Wannabe Angels. He shares his insights and lessons learned and why he is a self-proclaimed marketplace geek. Tune in to discover valuable tips for founders, the power of storytelling and pitching, and the importance of consistent communication with investors. Enjoy the show. Well, Colin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to hear all about your journey and how you are now an operator in residence at Techstars, all the things that you've done raising over $200 million at various places. So why don't we get started? Colin, tell us how you even learned about what angel investing is? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think a lot of people think the natural spot to start with the story is you know working in tech and something along those lines. But I, as I was thinking about it, it really all started with my parents who were entrepreneurs in themselves. They started a commercial fishing company. We're from Alaska. That was like one of the first companies to focus on delivering like fresh seafood to grocery stores, whether it was like fresh raw salmon or smoked salmon, things like that. And it was always, you know, inculcated in me that they got the company together by raising money from friends and family and having those people as shareholders in the business. So for me, that was like my first... We didn't call it angel investing, but that was kind of my first experience with how companies get up and going with capital. And then through my time in tech for the past 10, 15 years. You know, I think my first experience with angel investors, I kind of knew of it and people that did it. But it was really like looking at my first cap table and be like, who, who are these like random people on this cap table? These aren't fun names. And then, you know, getting explained to me that like there's angel investors. They were very early supporters of the company. And so that got me interested and piqued my interest. And then from that point on, I was seeking out, but also as I met founders, trying to do what I could to help them raise, but also investing where I could. And so for the I think the last part of uh, 10 years been doing angel investing with a lot more of it happening in the past year, a lot more density. How much time was spent when you were raising or how much time spanned when you were raising the 200 million? You were, it was with various companies and I think. Yeah. So I was at Outdoorsy for about five years, which was a preponderance of that, that I got to help raise. And then uh, previous companies, Tripping.com. And so in, in all those cases, I got to be at the table with fundraising. My, my expertise is around data modeling and so and, and kind of storytelling when it comes to pitching. It's like one of my strengths. And so I was always kind of critically involved in that, the diligence process. And yeah, so that was, let's call it eight years somewhere five five to eight years of uh, time for that fundraising. And tell us about some of the lessons that you learned. Oh man, I think I made every mistake and learned everything humanly possible, which is great because now I try to help people every day. And by people, I mean founders pitch better and visualize their businesses better. I learned a lot of interesting things about the fundraising process. One, it is very much about storytelling. The other parts of it that I think are really interesting 
are really around how you set things up. So, you know, for example, I think a lot of founders tell the story, but they don't really think about how they even anchor valuation or something like that. And so I think a lot of the advice I give people is start forecasting your business and under promise and over deliver and set a track record of always beating your numbers. Right. And I think what that gives you over time is that if you can show that investor updates and over time, is that you have a track record of beating your forecast, which means you can then be relied upon to give people a forecast of the future on your next fundraising round. Like, let's say you're raising an end of Q1 in March and you want to get credit for the full year of the coming year and get that as your valuation set point, you can point back to your forecasting and be like, hey, look, I've always beat our, you know, I always beat my numbers and I know how to accurately forecast the business. And then people will give you credit forward, hopefully, but a much more credible point of view for doing that. So I think there's a lot of things around that that are kind of the earlier you can architect some of these feelings and thoughts about the business such that other investors also talk about how you always beat your numbers or how you're reliable, things like that can really be helpful. I think people mostly just get to fundraising and they're like, I need to get money now. And they haven't really thought through the process. They haven't built relationships with people. So those are the big things that I would say I've learned from all of it. There's lots of like micro lessons and all of it. Two, like one of the things that I find to be very true is that if people want to invest, they're pretty clear about investing. And that if they're kind of jerking you around in any way or not moving very quickly, they probably don't want to invest, right? Or they don't want to invest at your terms. And so just to be like very clear about that and be able to move on quickly, I think is like a key part for founders and all of that. Yeah, you know, Colin, you made such a good point there about just the communication, the storytelling, like keeping people up to date. I've seen founders where, as you mentioned, you know, they they get all wrapped up and I need money, I need money. And then they go and try to raise money, but they haven't built the relationships. They haven't been keeping people up to date. You know, one of the best examples I saw, and this company was a little bit farther along. So the CEO had some experience under his belt, but he would send an email every month. And I think what he did, I'm sure he had to do this in order to, you know, not be crazy by the end of the month, but literally, I think every day he would put like just a little note to himself about what happened during the day or during the week. And then at the end of the month, he would send that update to not just the investors in the company, but he was sending it to like potential investors, friends of the company. It wasn't detailed financials or anything like that, but it was milestones that they were hitting and the things that he planned to do in the next month. And I think people saw that as like, hey, this guy's really going somewhere only because they were hearing about him more than necessarily somebody else who was also probably going somewhere, but they weren't hearing and getting all that communication. And I think that can be so valuable. And I like what you said about showing people where you want to be and then getting there and making sure that you're you can accurately forecast what's going on with your business it gives people so much more confidence yeah i think the whole investor update piece of this is like another lesson i learned in all of this is that consistent investor updatings and i think it's less about how like often you do it weekly monthly quarterly yearly you know as you get later stage, quarterly makes a lot more sense. Earlier stage, monthly makes sense too. But I think it's just about the consistency of it and using that as a way to architect your story into fundraising is really important because those are, you know, they're living proof of where the business was. And, you know, I think 
on the flip side, if I'm doing diligence on a company, I always ask for the investor updates, uh, at least the past three, six, you know, whatever you can get to essentially be able to kind of look and see how the business was going in a more candid way. But overall, I just, you know, there's so many tools at your advantage as a founder to kind of lay the evidence of why your business is fundable. And I just don't think a lot of people leverage it like really intelligently. Totally. Now, we were just talking about lessons for the founders, but what do you wish angels knew while you were in the process of this fundraise? What did you learn from that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, a lot of the angels I work with on a day-to-day basis are, are more like previous operators. So I feel like they have a lot of empathy in all this, but I do feel like that empathy wanes really quickly. <laughs> and, you know, I, I I have the luxury of getting to work with founders every day. That's what I do for my day jobs. I'm advising consult marketplaces on growth, monetization, analytics, strategy, and fundraising. That's kind of my my wheelhouse. And so I get to be on their side again almost daily and remember how hard it is, just fundamentally how hard building a business is. And I just see the other side of it of angel investors or even investors in general are like, my DMs are exploding with really low quality things and there's like a few diamonds in the rough. And so when you kind of view it that way, you're always looking for the best things, right? And not really viewing it from the founder side where everything is always a work in progress and it's a struggle every day. And I think the really good angel investors and and VCs in general never forget what it was like to build a business. And I think Ben Horowitz, he had the rule at Andreessen, or it has it probably, where you know every minute you're late to a meeting, you have to, I think it's a dollar. And I think that is like a really good way of inculcating of how important founder's time is, right? And how little of it they have, that resource. And so I just try to remind angels I work with that like, this person has everything on the line. And just because they may seem desperate or they really are trying to like argue and be passionate for what they're doing doesn't mean they're not a good investment or things like that. I think that's like a really important piece of it. So anyway, that is just a long way winded say of saying that it's like the longer you go without being on the other side of it, I think the easier it is to forget how hard it is and to lose empathy. And that that empathy is really important to finding good deals and great founders because they don't, they don't all look exactly the same. I completely agree with that. And it is really, really hard to grow these businesses. And there's so many ups and downs and pivots and changes and all types of things that happen. So what led you to Techstars? Yeah, so my most recent gig was, uh, you know, as a full-time employee, was at Outdoorsy where I was for five years, chief product officer originally, and then chief revenue officer for a number of years. For our listeners, oh, yeah. that's what Outdoorsy does? Yeah, so it's uh, just like Airbnb, but for RVs. And, you know, it's done 2 billion plus in GMV. So ostensibly, a, you know, a huge success and a really cool business. It's just fun to put people on the road. And so I left there in March of last year and I had some more time on my hands. And so I live in Austin, but we're relatively new in the sense that we've been here for five years. And so one of my uh, old coworkers suggested I start mentoring tech stars and they do 12 companies per cohort. And I just loved it. It was just super fun. And so I had done three cohorts, I think, of for you know pro bono, just helping companies out because it just got me going. 
And maybe I was doing a good enough job that the uh, Amos, the guy that runs it, the MD here in Austin, offered me a, a position as an OIR operator in residence. They have three of them every session. And kind of the rest is history. And so I get a fun job for part-time of working with four of the 12 companies to help them, you know, kind of help steward them through the program. And that's working on product market fit, building a model, fundraising, narrative, storytelling, all of it. And, you know, and all the squiggliness in between. And so it's super fun and rewarding. And the the two other OIRs I get to work with are, they also just love it. They get energy out of working with the companies and helping them. And so, yeah, it's super fun. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So the operators in residence, there's three of you. And then, so you, you're you kind of like the, the Techstars employees, sort of. And then you have mentors that kind of help the cohort, but you're really the one who's shepherding them through the program. Is that right? Yeah. So I think the basic structure, kind of the easiest way to think about it is there's the MD and kind of investment slash management team, operations team that does all of the hard work of picking the companies, getting them to town, you know, all of the pieces and curriculum, scheduling, all the pieces of the accelerator, right? And then the OIRs are people with like lots of experience building startups. And so what we do is we basically help those companies digest the material, put it into practice, and answer questions, you know, be a little bit of a therapist at times, and you know, help, help them like go through the program well, right? Like be successful and fully leverage everything they're doing, but also, you know, be an extension of the the actual team who's very focused on making sure you know all the trains run on time, and kind of being their eyes and ears on the ground of how companies are doing, what they're implementing, and all of those things. So, what led you to start Wanna Be Angels podcast? You know, it's funny, Harry and I met online, basically, I think one of us reached out and said, Hey, you seem cool. And you know, Harry's the rideshare guy, that's his spiel. And so I've been in marketplaces for a long time. RVs were, you know, our auto, essentially ride sharing. And so we just kind of had some kindred spirit around those things and started talking about angel investing. He sent me some deals, I sent him some, we co-invested on a few. And you know, and just talking about it, we be, we became friends. And in all of it, we were like, man, we don't know anything about angel investing. And like, how does anyone learn about all these things other than the two of us texting and just sharing our war stories? And that was really the impetus for all of it was like, hey, what if we just interviewed people that knew what they were doing, or at least that we thought they knew what they were doing and got to learn from them. And so, so people like yourself, we get the luxury and opportunity of having a reason to try, you know, to talk to them. And so I think a lot of the guests that we end up talking to have been longtime angel investors and massively well invested across all kinds of things, gone on to make their own funds. You know, I, it's just been super fun just to talk to that swath of people and learn from them. Cause I think everyone's got a different take. They all have similar but different lessons that they learned out of it. But overall, it's been great for us because I think we keep learning from it. And like I said, like I think what is an angel investor, you know, and everyone's like along a spectrum on it, and there's really no centralized information around it. Um, There are more and more like communities, groups around teaching people how to angel invest, which is great. But you know, up until I'd say the past year, that haven't really been that many. And so that's what we were reflecting is like, can we just create content for people about angel investing, learning from some of the best out there? That was the gist. 
And that is so needed because we really just, to your point, angel investing can be so many things. It it doesn't have a one size fits all for people. And I'm super passionate about wanting to tell people about it, have them learn about it. And imagine a world where everybody was doing some kind of angel investing the way that some people, you know, give to charity. So I think it could be, there's so much more that we could do if more people knew about it and didn't think it was like super scary and only for rich people. So, yeah, I I mean, I think that was a key insight that I had over the years was I started with much larger check sizes than I write on average today. And part of that was culture change. I think AngelList maybe was around, but wasn't was more of the job website than it was the syndicate website when I first started. And now that that's become really prevalent and you can write a thousand dollar check, I think it just really opens up the window. You know, I think the you know, they say the Overton window, it's really around policy, but the Overton window for angel investing is kind of now, right? Technology, acceptance. I think on our podcast, we talked a little bit about the legislative side of what's happening there. You know, there's like a lot happening right now that is this perfect storm and opportunity for opening it up to the broader market, crowdfunding, whatever it may be. So yeah, no, it's exciting. I'm, I'm excited for it. And my little part of that has been doing my own syndicate, uh, Yonder Ventures. Go to yonder.bc to see it and kind of getting to invest in marketplaces that I get to work with and really care about and really bring in more investors to the cap table. And so, one of the things I, it's been nice is that I have a large network of marketplace founders that I know, operators, and they're not all extremely wealthy, but they all really care deeply about those businesses and want to help and be invested in them. And so, being able to invest as little as a thousand dollars, right, really opens up opportunity both for the companies to get access to great people, but also for these people to put money into things that they know well and believe in. So I don't know. That's my little part of it. And I just I get so excited every time an LP puts any money into a business and I get to tell a founder that we're helping them build their vision. That gets me out of the out of bed every morning. Isn't that the best? I know. Sometimes like people ask me, what do you tell people at cocktail parties that you do? I I tell them I make founders' dreams come true. (laughs) Yeah. I think our first one of our first guests on one of the angels was Jack Greco and he's a very prolific investor also in, in marketplace aficionado. But I think he said something that really struck me was, you know, if you can put a hundred K into a company, you can basically have the money to hire someone for them to change their business. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I always had that in the back of my head, right? That this money allows this company to get some resource that can be an inflection point for that business. And so, I don't know. I just love that. And I think about that often as I go to market to help people fundraise. Like, how do we do that? How do we get you, your people at 10X your business? Exactly. So before we go, tell us about... You don't have to pick your favorite because you can never (laughs) pick a favorite, right? But tell us about maybe a recent company that you've invested in and what they do. Oh, there's quite a few. I do love them all. (laughs) Maybe I can tell you more about as I've been investing more, what good looks like, you know, like what what's a really compelling investment. And then I'll tell you about one I like. A lot of companies, you know, you, you talk about traction and like what that means. And so there's been a few companies I've invested in where it just hit me over the head what good traction is. Like it took them a while to get going, but once that kind of product market fit hit, they were growing just crazy multiples, like 500% in like a month kind of thing. And so 
as I've started to do more investing, in particular in marketplaces, it's really come back to me on like how important distribution is in all of this and how these businesses won't grow if they don't have like really good distribution methods or really unique ways of going to market. And so one of the ones I really enjoy what they've done is a company called Autopilot. They're essentially a marketplace for copy trading bots. And and realistically, longer term, what they're trying to do is be like a marketplace for custom ETFs that are self-custodied in your brokerage account. So like for now, I can copy trade Nancy Pelosi or Michael Burry or Citadel. And what they do is they follow all their public trades, whatever they're tweeting about. And they make essentially a portfolio that they trade for you like in your Robinhood account. And one of the things I thought was just impressive about what they did is that their marketing strategy was building these essentially Twitter accounts around copy trading, right? Around Nancy Pelosi, Michael Burry. And so some of these accounts have hundreds of thousands of, you know, not million followers. And there's these great marketing assets for them. And what I think is really important takeaway from some of these businesses is that however you can come up with this like unique go-to-market strategy for distribution is really vitally important. And I just I've been looking more and more for businesses that have some kind of earned insight or unique way of doing that because I think those are the ones that are going to stand out in the long run. Yeah, that's super interesting. I didn't know people did that. Oh man, you should check them out. Super cool business. I use the product myself and yeah. I, I I met the founders over Twitter DM. So it's one of those like fun stories. That is a fun story. Well, Colin, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your journey with us. And we will definitely put links to all of this in the show notes, including how they can listen to Wannabe Angels. I appreciate it. I love being on. All right. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening. To connect with me, visit my website at marshadawood.com. And if you're looking to learn more about investing in the changes that you want to see in the world, sign up for Anne and Bill Payne's ACA Angel University classes. You go to angelcapitalassociation.org, all one word, to find out the schedule. And beginning in the fall of 2023, classes will be available on demand. Many classes are offered, everything from the angel investing basics. So there's classes on the fundamentals, risks, due diligence, term sheets, valuations, returns and portfolio strategy. And for a deeper dive, there are advanced classes, which include capitalization tables, startup boards, and exit strategies. If you're not already a member of the Angel Capital Association, you can become one for the low price of $295 for the year. And that will give you unparalleled access to discounts, free webinars with a huge archive of content, networking opportunities, and much more. We'd love to have you join us. All content for this website is informational and not intended to serve as legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. Well, Marsha, that's me, does serve on the SEC Small Business Capital Formation Advisory Committee. My views are my own and not the views of the SEC or my fellow colleagues on the committee. Our speakers and hosts are thoughtfully selected for their educational value, but their opinions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the host, me, or the Angel Capital Association and neither specifically endorse the use of presenters' products or services, listeners of the podcast should consult their own tax investing legal or accounting advisors before making important financial decisions. All warranties, including accuracy, completeness, and suitability for specific purpose, are disclaimed.